0: Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. And today we're joined by Ryan Cagle, uh, which I just realized I didn't know if I, I didn't ask to say if that's how you say your name, but Ryan, do you want to, you want to introduce yourself and, and or correct me on your pronunciation?
1: Yeah, actually that's exactly how you pronounce it. Uh, I don't, I've never really encountered anyone that's mispronounced it. So like you're you're in good company, I guess. Uh, Pretty easy name. But I'm Ryan Cagle. I do so much uh, shit. Uh, I did not ask if I could swear on this podcast. No, you
0: I'm sorry. It's fine. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, that might be the first, that must be the first uh, instance of cussing though, like time wise of any, uh, of any podcast. So well, well done in the intro. I don't know that we've got one in the intro yet. So perfect. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I do a lot of stuff. I am uh, a habitual church worker and Christian, uh, sometimes probably against my better interests. I design games, um, but currently, like the big thing, I guess the main reason I'm here is that I I am planting a faith community, kind of really structured around uh, mutual aid and solidarity in the backwoods of Alabama in a place called Walker County. And it's a ministry called Jubilee House. And um, just really focusing on anti-racist work, LGBTQ plus inclusion,
0: and then anti-capitalist work as well, which is a distinctive that we proudly kind of Forward, so yeah, and you kind of you kind of stole my thunder uh, because that, that's what I was going to bring up first. So the thing I think planting a church in, as you described, the backwoods of, of Alabama, and then having some of the values be anti-capitalist, anti-racist, uh, solidarity, not charity, and then being open and affirming. I might be playing into some of the stereotypes people have about the South, but that feels more radical than if you were planting a church in, say, Portland, Oregon, doing the same thing. So, so I, I guess I'd be interested to see, you know, just to start us off, like what what does that what does that look like in you know in in rural Alabama. As, as you know, CJ and I both come from the South. Well, CJ's uh, Southern is debate, debatable by uh, Isaac sometimes, but we're going to include uh, include him just for this one because Isaac's not here and he can't say anything. But what does that look like? like? What does it look like to kind of start a church that has those kind of core values in a place where, especially I, I just think I feel like the anti-capitalist one is probably like that's probably a stretch for a lot of people. What, do you, what, what, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so right now, it doesn't look anything like starting a church, to be honest, uh, in the traditional sense of like the way I think most people uh, would plant a church or a faith community or or something, a ministry or whatever. Um, We're really coming at that whole part sideways. So like the worshiping, like actual community side is not secondary, but it's not as high on the priorities currently because... Right now, we're really just trying to work to build up on those relationships in the community and through things like direct action and feeding folks and kind of having those conversations around what a different world looks like here in the South. And I think it does seem radical because everyone kind of has this stereotypical idea of what the South is. But just like me and CJ were talking about before this started, like, you know, uh, when they brought their liberal pnw youth group kids to alabama they like encountering people of color um and it's because like the south has you know some of the largest populations of black people and other people of color has some of the largest population in the country of lgbtq plus folks um and alabama specifically has a long history of kind of radical thought it's been snuffed out so much here and there and it's not what we get taught in history i mean i even growing up here, you know, I was, I was taught, like, you know, the Black Panther Party was essentially the Black KKK, you know, and that, sl- you know, plantations were, you know, worked, or slave, slave, slaves were called, like, you know, plantation workers in my history books and things like that. So, like, there's a, obviously a lot of that that goes into kind of perpetuating this false narrative here within our context. And then it just kind of like overflows to the boundaries outside of the South, the way people think about it. But there is nothing more redneck than like not wanting to put up with some bullshit boss. Like there's nothing more, nothing more hillbilly than saying all cops are bastards. And you know that, and really, truly it's not. And so there is this kind of like fertile soil here for this kind of work and it gets written off and by, you know, and that's why like the whole, you know, Democrats and liberals, they, they have this issue and they, they talk about the South the way they do. And the reason the South doesn't care about their opinions is because like, they don't actually care about the people here. Yep. And so even if someone is probably not radical and thinking, you know, like right now there's a huge um, mine union strike going on uh, here, just, Uh, 45 minutes down the road from where where I'm at. And I would say most most of those people are not leftists. They're not, you know, they wouldn't call themselves like anti-capitalist the way that I do or or anything like that. But they have like a a framework for pushing back against like abusive work structures and like bad labor practices. And so like here, it's really, it's just like for me, it it seems like just a fertile soil for it. Um, Especially like when you think of like concepts like mutual aid. If I break down in Walmart parking lot. My battery dies. i leave my lights on. I'm going to have eight people at my car offering to jump me off like that. Now I'll flip that. And when I was in a liberal city out West, I broke a uh, battery died. I literally sat there for an hour. I asked multiple people. I had my own jumper cables. No one would jump me off. Right. And then eventually a, a man, a houseless man who lived in his car came by and jumped me off. Uh, and I remember being there like just three months in thinking like, what, what is up with this place? Yeah. Like, I can't imagine that. Uh, so here, like that idea of like helping people, even if like, even if people have like really bad theology or really bad politics, they already have this tendency to help people when they see them in need. Um, and so like, you know, when just, uh, in March, when we were digging, uh, water lines, a neighbor came over, brought his tractor over and just dug them for us because we were going to dig them by hand with no questions asked, no strings you know, attached. And so like it's really just fertile soil for some of these things um and in the south we know no one's coming to save us like the the local governments are not going to save us the federal government's not going to save us the churches are not going to do anything to save us in in this larger sense of it and so like it just it feels like we're kind of like in this pressure cooker and if we have people that would come here to do this work it, it wouldn't take much to see folks radicalized is not really the right word i would use but i would say like deconverted from this idea of um some of these things because they're like on the precipice of it um the the way they experience the world around them is already there you know um they don't speak that language though and that's one of the things that's critical kind of to the work that i'm doing is that they don't speak anti-capitalist language and if i was to talk about socialism it would like instantly with some people shut them down right uh even though that Truly, what they would probably want in life is actually socialism, but they've been so propagandized to believe like certain phrases and and terminology mean these other things. And so a great deal of the work here is deconverting people. It's like de-evangelizing them from this worldview that they've been handed um, to actually show how these other ideas actually align with their values and their desires
0: and for their betterment. Yeah. I won't say neoliberalism because that's my go-to word. <laughs> CJ knows. But but I, I love what you're talking about for a couple of reasons. One, there's no purity test here, which I think happens in a lot of like leftist kind of communities, especially online. This idea that you have to kind of be, you have to match this bar of kind of belief before you can actually be a part of the work. So I, I really love hearing that. I also love thinking about the idea of like as mutual aid, because the South, you know, I I always say that, you know, I have a, I have some friends in North Carolina that if anybody messed with me, I could I, one phone call and six of them would be in a truck with a crowbar to come up and help take care of whatever my problem is, whether that's another person or fixing a car or whatever it is. And there's a sense of kind of that loyalty that I think does is like fertile ground for this type of thing. And it strikes me that maybe there is some I don't know if it's a, if it's an obstacle, but like that idea of like of mutual aid is baked into the culture, but also this sense of like there is like a hyper individual individuality, and like how do those two things I guess kind of play along? Like I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get things together, uh, and I'm going to kind of keep working hard until I have you know the car that I want, and and I have this piece of land that I want, and kind of piecing things together. I think that's really baked into a lot of my friends too in the South. Do you see any kind of conflict there between like this idea of like i don't want to be given anything but also they are they do already kind of a lot of people in the south already operate from that mindset do you see a a conflict there ever
1: yeah. And I
0: think that hyper kind of
1: individualistic, you know, if I can get my one acre tractor, you know, and, you know, have my pontoon boat or whatever here in the South is like definitely prevalent. Uh, I would say that the majority of people like the circles I run in are people that are so poor, like they know that's never going to happen. Anyway. Like, you know, they're, it's not um, they, they can't afford to be individualistic uh, in the sense of like actually practically how they live. Um, but definitely that conflict is there, but it's it's typically with those kind of on the upper side of the middle class spectrum of people, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. But the primary people that I'm running in circles with are people who, who know like there's no pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and it takes literally the whole village. It takes the whole, all of us to like make things happen. And that was my experience growing up, you know, in rural Alabama. And so, but there's, is definitely that, that hard work ethic or, or whatever. And people push back against, you know, unions and, all these different things like the minor minor strike right now. uh, I'm very thankful that like in my town, you can drive through and just see signs supporting the union workers everywhere um, because they know like we're all in this together. Um, But yeah, that, that mindset of individualism, you know, really worried about yourself that that's prevalent here, just like it is going to be anywhere. Um, I would, I would say though, that it's probably not so much, um, especially in the more poor, poor communities because they know like everything in their life is inherently like connected to, Everyone else's and their survival is dependent on the people around them, their family, or their you know other social relations.
0: Yeah, I just outed myself as like a as a as an outsider. I outed myself as a as part of the bourgeois, I guess. CJ, do you have a question you want to take over so I can recover and get my street cred back?
2: Oh, sorry. I guess I don't have a question. I just I saw a tweet today. Some dumbass was like, "I'm wearing a was wearing a camo uh, baseball cap with an anarchist symbol on it." He's like, "I'm visiting my sister in the rural south," and you know uh got a lot of double takes and i was like it's good i mean i don't know dude like i don't i don't know that it's the anarchist symbol that's getting you double takes um <laughs> people just have such shitty uh shitty takes about about the rule south but i'm so excited to hear to hear about the work that you're doing brian because um yeah. I mean, it's super, it's, it's needed. And it's also, it's, it's grounded in a lineage. I actually just started reading a book called Hammer and Ho about um, Alabama communists and the yep. Great Depression. So it's like, these are, these are our ancestors. These are, the people who have been doing this work in this place for a long time, even if a current, currently a lot of people don't remember that.
1: Yeah, and that Hamron Ho could not recommend that book enough. Uh, also read Black and White, which is also kind of a, a period book that focuses on uh, communism and Alabama sharecroppers from the 30s to the 50s. It's a really good uh, insight onto how, like, you know, that basically Black, poor, Christian, communist sharecroppers paved the way for the civil rights movement in the South. Mm. And it's just critical. It's critical reading, I think, for anyone who wants to understand, like, that there is like a heritage here of that, even if, you know, it's it's been squashed and um, pushed down, you know, Red Scare after Red Scare. Right. You know, we uh, it's still technically illegal in Alabama to have like communist or like leftist, anti-fascist, any kind of like documentation or
0: propaganda. It's still technically illegal here. Well, I you mean, anti foe. we don't want to get down that path. I mean, that, yes. that makes that makes sense. We well done, Alabama. You know i uh,
2: but you know it's also illegal in well, maybe it's still legal in Alabama. It's also illegal to handle snakes in most uh most states, and your twitter your twitter um name for a long time included snake handling, so I'm interested to hear what kind of um what kind of faith background do you come from you know like what your community of worship looks like now
1: yeah, um so I didn't grow up in the church. My, my We didn't really have time for church growing up, I don't think. Uh, I grew up, my, my mom was a single mom, multiple kids, you know, working multiple jobs. She's a living saint. And so really didn't go to church. And then when I was like a teenager, I started going to church, I had a little Baptist church and then a primitive Baptist, Baptist church that was also Pentecostal. It was kind of a strange place. Really good though. And then Pentecostalism, that was really where I cut my teeth. I would say in the Christian tradition uh, is the tradition that is most deeply formed to me. No, um, I would just to be totally candid. I don't actually come from a snake handling uh, branch of Pentecostalism, but I literally—they're not all large. through. Yeah, no, no. Um, I mean Stone Mountain's not far, uh, so like it's uh, or Sand Mountain's not far, so like. I've been around those people. Uh, I I know people who are in those circles uh, for sure. Um, But I was specifically like within the Assemblies of God, uh, but wasn't very much into the Assemblies of God as a whole. had a bunch of issues as a teenager being just the anarchist I am with even the low church hierarchy that was present there. So (laughs) the fact that I thought later on I could survive in the Episcopal Church um, was really just... Uh, Beyond me, why I thought that was ever going to be good (laughs) because uh, I had issues with the hierarchy in this low church Pentecostal, you know, not non uh, like overtly hierarchical structure of the assemblies of God. So, you know. You yeah. just try stuff sometimes. You
0: know you're on brand when you when you can't uh, fa- uh, function in, in the lowest of low churches. And you're like, I don't know about all this structure here. <laughs> Sorry, <I> keep going. <laughs> like, yeah, I really know no, I mean,
1: it was like true. I was like, I remember being like a teenager at our Assembly got Church. So we were like a half church plant. It was primarily poor folks, addicts, uh, elderly people on like fixed incomes, living in poverty, multiracial. And I just remember being like, the assemblies of God always like would give us these like things, we hoops to jump through so we could like be valid or get money to kind of help. Um, and every time we would jump through a hoop, they would just add another hoop. So I remember being like 16 and be like, this is bullshit. Like, like let's just leave. Like, we don't need them. We can still go to the assembly guy and carry the kids to the assembly guy. To camp. Uh, and then eventually at that church, I became the youth pastor. Um, and, uh, you know, even then, like we would carry the kids to camp because it was just so fun. But then like we would sit through the services and then after we would have a debrief about all the bullshit that was said and how like we didn't agree with any of it, (laughs) like, you know, and I would have kids, you know, in the middle of the service looking at me like, why is this guy saying that? Like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He really needs to read his Bible, you know? Uh, So like, you know, just very, um, didn't really fit in there. Our church was kind of the, um, the outskirts of, the, of that tradition. So, but Pentecostalism has been the the, the tradition that has totally formed me the most. Um, it's where I learned to engage the Scripture. It's learned. It's where I learned the church could be egalitarian and that uh, gender and not to say there was. It's completely free of patriarchy or or racism or anything like that. Because uh, it's definitely not. All churches have it. Um, but in my particular experience with Pentecostalism. I saw a spirit that liberated. I saw a spirit that broke down these gender divides, that broke down these racial divides, that broke down all of these different things and offered people rest and joy in the middle of just suffering poverty and drug addiction and all of these things. So that's like, that's where my, it took me a long time when I came out of uh, that Pentecostal church uh, because one of the big issues is like, I just thought, I got into this reading and realized like some of our eschatology was really, really bad. And it was just all downhill from there. And I had to leave and I, I wasn't a part of a church community for nearly two years without having a panic attack on a Sunday trying to go in. And uh, and so like I dropped that Pentecostal kind of identity, um, but it's never not been there. And so like really the last, I would say, seven years or so, I've really been trying to reclaim that in a different way. Uh, the Pentecostal church is not Pentecostal enough to me. <laughs> um, most often, I would say, and so for me, it's just rooted in this, this experience, this you know, like literal experience of the Spirit of God to liberate and change and and bring peace and comfort and into the lives of people who are suffering.
0: How did you survive in the in the Episcopal Church? <laughs> That's a, because like that right there, I I, I often get the I, I am often too to God, uh, to God, uh, to Christian, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, I feel like in, in Episcopal circles uh, and I, I, didn't, I did, definitely didn't come from the Pentecostal, but it's like one of the things I, I think that's really interesting about this, it's, I feel like it's the same thing that's happening with what you're trying to do in Alabama, right? Like this idea of like, this is what formed me and this is where I see that I can see the potential of how the spirit might move through this kind of label. But it's also, I think, Pentecostal, I think, as a label and I might just be showing my own uh, my own bias here, but I think when it, when people hear Pentecostal, they don't immediately think radically left wing. At the same time, no. So why? I mean, to me, I would take a little bit of sick pleasure in that, like especially on Twitter, to be able to like to like be like, no, I'm not I'm not giving that up. And perhaps you already answered it, but it's like, why do those? Is is it just the is it the fact that they're just because you see the Holy Spirit as this kind of like thing that's going to run loose and li- and liberate, and we can't control it? I guess why why claim why keep Pentecostal? As a kind of like determinant uh, in in how you think, as opposed to I don't know other language. I, I and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to come at you on this. I think it's actually great. I love when weird Anglican Twitter gets all worked up over somebody who who calls themselves a Pentecostal or somebody that likes shit I don't know, like praise music or something, or or God yeah. forbid, wants to give everybody communion without checking if they've been baptized. You know, that's like, is there? I guess how does that how does that kind of like claiming terms at the same time as like busting uh, through different terms work, I guess, in your own theology or in the ministry that you're trying to start. You may have just answered this, but give it a shot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I guess on like a personal level, kind of reclaiming it is because for me... When I look at my experience of the Pentecostal Church, even though it was logically rooted in early Pentecostalism, experientially it, it looked like that to me. So, like early Pentecostalism, like you know, it's Pentecostalism and charismatic movements a second wave, second wave Pentecostalism essentially has has become so wedded with evangelicalism that people can't tell them apart. Some of the most prominent evangelical fundamentalist people are Pentecostals or Charismatics uh, when in the early days, they could not have been more separate. In the early days, of Pente- the Pentecostals, Pentecostals have always been messy. So it's kind of hard to talk about it like in broad terms. Uh, because there's always going to be instances of like, where you can disprove what someone says because this group did this and it didn't look like that or whatever. But, you know, Azusa was like radical, like, you know, uh, one of the biggest reasons it was so it was like slandered was because it was, it was, they called it an African religion, that it wasn't Christianity because of the ecstatic worship, because of the speaking in tongues. You know, of course it was, it was ridiculous because like they had black, black folks and white folks worshiping together, both preaching you know they had women preaching and like this is in you know the early early 1900s and coming into the 20s and uh it's just this crazy movement and originally like very much anti-war like one of the largest anti-war anti-violence uh movements was rooted in Pentecostalism uh which is crazy because we're not known as a peace tradition when people think of like peace churches in America Pentecostalism is not one of those uh but it was really critical to a lot of early Pentecostal faith, and so for me I'm reaching further back beyond the structures that I kind of, my faith kind of budded in to reach back to kind of a, a more primordial, I guess, older uh, sense of Pentecostalism to try to understand that way of being, because that's what I experienced. The things when I go back and I read history and when I read, um, you know, William Seymour and I read the things that happened is those are the things that, that I experienced in Cordova, Alabama, in our little house church. Um, even if ideologically, we weren't even in the same place. Um, And so like for me, reclaiming it is saying this has shaped me and I can't live beyond it because it's still, even today, um, even on the the days that I would consider myself not Pentecostal uh, over the years, like... I find myself moved um to speaking it praying in tongues um and I find myself moved to believing that God can move in these situations, and so these things are just so formative, I couldn't get away from them if I wanted to um and so I think that's one of the things is like I finally just like decided, you know what, this is who I am, this is how I've been formed by it, and I can't be. I can't detach myself from it in the same way I can't detach myself from Christian just because like Franklin Graham or Trump claim to be Christian. Like I'm not going to not call myself Christian just because of these other people call themselves Christian. And I think they're completely antichrist in their whole like way of being. And so I want to offer in some sense, an alternative view of what Pentecostalism can be in the same way that I want to offer an alternative view of what Christianity can be. And so as far as my work here at Jubilee house, uh, we're not like overtly Pentecostal in any sense, But the largest churches growing in our area are charismatic churches, one of which I think it was nine years ago now. I remember being in a service at their church where they had um, a a young teenager uh, who was deaf come up and they all, you know, they did the work. They did They all slapped him in the forehead. They did all of it. Uh, And then when he wasn't healed, they blamed it on him. Said it was because he didn't have enough faith. And I boiled inside. I confronted them in the middle of the service. I told them it was full of shit that they like what they did was wrong all this stuff. And I realized then that I, I had to get out of Walker County. And so I, that ultimately that's what I did. But now coming back, it's like, I want people to see like, when I call myself Pentecostal, they're like, Oh, and they're going to make the connection to the other place. And I'm like, well, yeah, they're, they're one strand of what they're doing, but this is, I'm not offering an alternative in the sense of like trying to be better than them or any of those things, but I'm trying to show people that there's different ways of being, and that they don't get to ultimately define what Pentecostalism is. And so, of course, just overall, the my experience like within Pentecostalism shapes the, the whole approach um, to Jubilee House because the whole goal is to be non-hierarchical and egalitarian and open and dynamic rather than static. And to me, those are the things that were critically shaped me in Pentecostalism versus, you know, in these other places and you know, you, you make a comment about being like more, more Christian sometimes than some of the people in your circles. Um, I definitely felt that in which that's really true. So I, I, you know, I, I'm very much Pentecostal. I'm also a process theology guy, which comes into some weird tensions between process and Pentecostalism that I have to wrestle with a lot and think through more deeply. They don't always work together, uh, which is fine. Um, so like, even though like I'm very much not on the Orthodox end of many things, like I like the creeds, yeah, but at the end of the day, like I'm not, I'm not like stressing out about making sure everyone recites you know, believes in the way that I I understand them or whatever. And so, like being in the Episcopal Church for so long in our, our very liberal Episcopal Church, I was like, I just think some of these people I don't I don't even think they care about They're, like not care about and that's and kind of sounds like I'm misaligning them. Like like they just didn't really like things about Jesus were just like really secondary or things like that. And I'm like. Felt really out of place sometimes. Like we're reciting the creed, we're talking about Jesus, so let's let's talk about Jesus and what Jesus wants to do in this moment. And they're like, oh, that's not really how we think about this, you know? Or we go, we, we approach it
0: differently. Yeah, I mean, it's you're talking about how, what I hear on this on both sides is a willingness to invoke the Holy Spirit in in ways. On one hand, possibly just through language. On other, on the other hand, or on the other side, through action. But like what I hear, I think you kind of talking about is like. Listen, we're not going to harness this, but if we're going to really claim this language, I, this is something I say all the time. It's like watch out like if you're, you're going to use the language of the Holy Spirit, you know, watch out because it's going to take you somewhere that maybe you don't expect, and I think that there on both sides of kind of the, the, that story you we're talking about there's a there's a um, tamping down of the Holy Spirit at times to kind of help it make uh, fit the kind of narrative, either the theological narrative or church narrative that we come to expect um you know. I don't know, CJ. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like my my experience on that in the Episcopal Church is not that much different than most mainlines. That we're not. I think we kind of get embarrassed by that kind of charismatic Holy Spirit type talk. Like so, I but and that just makes me want to use it more because, like to me, like inviting that in, like that's what's actually going to uh, initiate a lot of change in our theology and the way we kind of act in the world. But I don't know, CJ. Do you have any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on the Holy Spirit, CJ?
2: Thoughts on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. No, this your chance. <laughs> Tee off. <laughs> I, um, you know, like, I just, in the Episcopal Church, I don't think that I have a ton of comments on that, just because, I mean, like, I haven't spent a ton of time in Episcopal Church context outside of the Pacific Northwest, which are so specific to that region that I almost don't know that you can um, apply those insights elsewhere. Just, like, the Pacific Northwest is such a strange region, (laughs) like, for For Christianity, and so people were like very woo woo in the churches that I went to and worked at, but like that also I think opened them up to talking about the Holy Spirit in ways that I found interesting thoughts on the holy spirit so i 'm sorry i 'm still thinking about like the history of Pentecostalism
0: go, go for it yeah
2: <laughs> which is uh, like I find the history of Pentecostalism to be a really interesting. Example of the way that like power can transmogrify like a a heavily egalitarian movement into something that like serves the patriarchy or that serves serves capitalism, because uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, like the the pentecostal movement started in holy in in a movement called holiness methodist churches in texas and was started by a black woman and the azusa pacific revival was led uh by a black man and it was highly egalitarian and it really wasn't until like the after amy simple mcpherson who was like this famous preacher and it went moved to la and like uh you know, had had like this enormous congregation of people of all class statuses and all races. It wasn't until after these movements that, and that the Vineyard, which I think was kind of like the crossover pen- charismatic evangelical church, that's really when Pentecostalism kind of came into the mainstream. It wasn't just like a weird, oh, the Assemblies of God denomination down the street. We don't know what's going on with that. I'm thinking about this because, uh, because now i think people wouldn't call themselves pentecostal but they would be having charismatic experiences in mainline mm. not mainline it, they would be they're having charismatic experiences in mega churches like bethel and mega churches like hillsong or like i had a lot of i mean like my friends on the world race would probably describe themselves as non-denominational but having a lot of charismatic experiences in worship but those charismatic experiences were, uh, and like kind of the movement of Pentecostalism in the world today has been taken into into the realm of like service of power and service, <laughs> service of money. Sorry, I, I'm just processing. I'm thinking out loud here.
1: <laughs> no, it's good. No, and you know, like one of the things that's so strange to me in this is I have some, Friends who are like deeply committed to like their Pentecostal heritage that are like in like hierarchical kind of uh, Episcopal Church and various things and or even in like Hillsong. To me, the thing that's like so, so striking to me is that like it's almost in the same way that like liberal mainline churches kind of, if they do take in any kind of like concept of liberation theology it doesn't come in enough to actually like change the structures. Mm-hmm. They want like the language and some of the things that come out of that, but they don't want to like it alter it their systems. And so like to me like when we see like charismatic stuff happening in either mainline or mega churches, ultimately like they want the the fruit of it without it like actually altering the structures of like what's there. And I would I would like push that towards, like, liberal mainline churches that have, like, charismatic, like, bends to them, which is, like, all over. I mean, we've, there's, like, charismatic Catholics, there's charismatic Australians, there's charismatic everyone, um, and it's, like, it, the part of, like, what Pentecostalism kind of brought into the world got diffused into these various traditions, whether it be mainline or mega megachurch, um, but ultimately don't, hasn't radically changed the structures that are there, which is, like, the real key component of what I think Pentecostalism offers the world, but
2: yeah. And I mean, like charismatic, charismatic movements is kind of like the ultimate anarchy in in spiritual spaces because it's uh, like the idea is that the Holy Spirit can come and, and speak to you and speak through you um, without mediation from a priest or from... Uh, Well, hold on now. Anyone else really? Like, I mean, it's it's up to you and the people in the room, the people that you're in community with, to decide if this is a word from God. And so, I think that's kind of like what freaks people out about it. But it's also the thing that can um, lead to like incredible harm done in charismatic spaces, which I think is what like my my experience of charismatic uh, worship kind and charismatic like. you know, like words from God and stuff kind of tended towards like, I ended up getting a lot of feedback that um, like ultimately I don't think was from the Lord, but that was really important to me at the time. And, you know, eventually led to me, like, I didn't go to church for a couple years like you did, Ryan. And so, I mean, I think that's what's so interesting to me about Pentecostalism is that um, it's so focused on this like direct relationship between, the person and the Holy Spirit, like almost to the exclusion of um, of other things that like Episcopalians take super seriously. Anyway, I could talk about it for hours.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would say like that, like the direct experiential, like uh, nature of Pentecostalism was like critical, but like you you touched on it as how like um, your direct experiential kind of like this experiencing God directly is situated within a community, right? Uh Granted, if patriarchy or all these like, Toxic, because the thing is, in Pentecostal churches, there's hierarchies. There's the men of God or the women of God who get to say whatever you know that kind of want to run things in some of the spaces. Um, but truly, like I think, if if a whole community can live into it, like I've seen pastors like be rebuked in the middle of service by. You know, someone who barely could read, who's like, no, you, this is wrong. And then the pastor repent right there in the middle of a service <laughs> for doing something wow. they, they, you know, like, uh, and that's like huge. And, and I think that's where, like, it gets messy and it's crazy, but it also like it, it there is that, like, the fact that the Holy Spirit, we, that I, I would sum up my Pentecostal theology in this, that the Holy Spirit does whatever the hell she wants and it doesn't matter if you got a degree it doesn't matter if you're literate. it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or you're poor it doesn't matter if you're an addict or you're sober it doesn't matter if you're the man of god or you're someone who's been coming to this church and sitting in a pew for the last six months or whatever um the spirit um tugs on our heart, so to speak or the spirit you know draws us in and ultimately like those those ideas of boundaries fall apart when the spirit wants to do whatever the spirit needs to do in that moment and people are willing to be moved and um provoked i guess in a sense in a good way um so like and i would say like one of the things that's really interesting to me that I, something i'm really interested in kind of now at this point in life is thinking through the similarities between like traditions like um communal traditions like quakerism and how they do like collective discernment and things and how like some of those like things actually operate like in a lot of these low church Pentecostal settings, they just kind of happen in the service rather than having like a, like um, a clearness committee that meets, you know, for so many weeks or whatever, or what, or, or a discernment committee in Episcopal Church, you know, like um, it happens there in the middle of community life versus having the separate things to like if someone's pursuing ordination or feels a call to ministry, you know, like in Episcopal Church, you have a discernment committee and then there's all then the stuff you got to do at the diocesan level. Well, like in the tradition I grew up in, it, it happened there. It was like an incubator kind of like, the worship service, the everything the church life you know. So there's a communal like aspect um, to that that's just really
0: um, something i just I just love um, where I've never experienced it anywhere else. you know, it's it's interesting, and it strikes me that how you just describe that is, I think similar to a whole. A lot of people who are come from liturgical traditions, specifically Episcopalians, also describe the liturgy, right? They describe the liturgy as a very democratic. Populist type of thing, like um, uh, you know basically us speaking our beliefs or praying our beliefs into practice through this kind of corporate thing, but i I kind of was chuckling when you were or were talking about thinking about somebody standing up in the middle of an episcopal liturgy and challenging the priest right It just would it would never happen uh, for a number of different reasons and i and I wonder. I'm one that's not necessarily ready to kind of ditch the structures of the church. Uh, And this is, I get, I get a lot of shit for this from multiple people in my life, because I I do think that for like that kind of the structure of the mainline church is an avenue for people to find and experience the Holy Spirit and to begin to understand and work towards like liberation (laughs) like that, that there's a way that I think that can happen through the church still. And it might be that i'm just a I'm just simping for the for the episcopal church because I'm trying to get ordained uh, so perhaps that's what it is a so grain of salt but but I, I think that like what you're describing is like that's the thing that i I love about um you on twitter and and when you sent me the kind of um jubilee house um like working documents, like how there's like there's a deep sense of the fact that. Like I think one of since one of your initiatives is like spiritual direction. Like there's a deep sense that there is something happening inside all of us, and we have to be able to kind of look and be present and hear and kind of articulate what that might be. Because in doing that, is that's the only way we're going to kind of get to those different places. And I think that's where I can't believe I'm going to agree with uh, with a friend of the pod, Mason, meant uh, uh, <laughs> about this. But one of the things that Mason is always talking about is like. Why is there only one person that stands up and talks? Why are the pews facing forward? And I do think that, that kind, those kind of conversations that come out of somebody letting, like for example, teenagers, to be able to question what's happening in the church and not just kind of blindly accept it, there's something really powerful there that I think that the mainline can um harness but i, I don't know I, I guess i'm just trying to say that i still want the uh, in case my bishop is listening i still want to i, I still believe in the episcopal church and and uh, i'd like to become a candidate uh for ministry but
2: you can leverage this you're just super <laughs> high church you actually believe in like whatever that orientation is where the priest is standing oh, facing the back of the church i actually with everybody hate that else.
0: i actually hate oh, that well
2: uh, <laughs> i'm trying to get you an out right yeah, all right
0: it's all right if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen uh, i've gone this long without wearing you know, a like- collar one of
1: the things that like really like has shaped me is like, um, critical pedagogy. Um, yes. but like when I read Paulo Freire, I was like, Oh, this is just like Pentecostal pedagogy. Um, like this is, <laughs> this is how we I've been doing it. And this is how I like learned the Bible, which was like really strange to like read those things and like come back. And which actually is a really, um, we, we actually, she doesn't know this, uh, Cheryl Bridges Johns. Um, we, us over in the weird Pentecostal Twitter, call her our uh, Pentecostal Twitter grandmother. She doesn't know that. She's not gonna listen to this podcast either. So it's gonna be fine. But she actually wrote a really good book like in dialogue with Paulo Freire, like Pentecostal formation, like in dialogue. And I remember re- and when I read that, I was just like, oh, like this is so cool because this is like two of my biggest influences are like actually just you know r- right there together. And that really has influenced kind of the approach that I'm hoping to take like at Jubilee house. Is that, you know, like everyone there has, everyone who participates, I think, in Christian community has just as much to add to the conversation. And I think sometimes I agree with Mason, um, Inga, that sometimes our aesthetics and the way that we worship prevent that genuine dialogue and input. Um, and we like to, like, I love, I mean, like, I enjoy liturgy. I enjoy, like, the BCP and, like, sitting through, you know, a good um, a good Episcopal service. But I don't necessarily think, I don't, I don't really believe that overall it can be the vehicle that carries people full, into fully being fully formed Christians. Like sometimes it seems like we think
0: it will. Well, and, it's it's baked know. into the idea. Like there are so many priests that believe that the liturgy is, that should be the main formation tool for people. And, they'll, and then they'll say like, well, the, the Book of Common Prayer is like 98% scripture. It's like, yeah, but nobody knows that. Like, if nobody knows that, they're not going to pick it up. You know, they're not going to pick it up. Anyway, whatever. We're going to get off on a on a tangent of mine that does not fit this podcast. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think that, I think you're right. And I think that, I think that that kind of, that critique can be leveled on just about any kind of faith community, right? Like there is, like there is, we, we get, we get, we we confuse tradition with, with um, preference, this is something I say all the time. Like, in, in the Episcopal Church, like you know, we confuse choral music and anthems with um, you know the tradition of the. It's like, well, no, we don't have to sing that. You know, we <laughs> that that's just what we like to sing in this particular church. And so, I think I think that thing, that conversation of like, where is the actual tradition, or where is kind of like what's rooted in the uh, the kind of Pentecost uh, nature of the church, as opposed to well, we sing this because you know, uh, X, and that X person gave X amount of dollars uh, to to, all, to make sure that we always sang this hymn on this Sunday. Anyway, I'm getting close to being cynical there. So you all, do you all want to turn to this uh, Gospel Coalition uh, article about the economics of how God uh, created the price system and it's one of God's artwork? Oh. <laughs> I mean, oh. even as I'm saying that, I I have no idea what this article is about. So we'll we'll pick out a couple of the good good poll quotes and see if we can figure out what what Mr. Uh, Joe Carter here is is talking about. Uh, So this was just published uh, yesterday on the 14th of July.
2: Yeah, I have a hard and fast rule that I don't give the Gospel Coalition clicks. So I've not read it.
0: (laughs) Good for you. I I couldn't help myself. I, I, I saw it float through my timeline and I was like, what the hell? What is this? And so they got me. I, 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 sorry, sorry to say, I got me. They got me. But you know, one of the things that you know that I think the poll quote and Ryan, you actually sent this to me, and it was the one that I was looking at is it says humans set individual prices, but it was God who designed the price system as a means of coordinating human activity for the purposes of human flourishing. So I have no idea what that means. I read that six times, and I'm still, I still have no idea what it means that God. So humans set prices, but it's God who created the price system. Do, do, do you have any idea what this means? Well,
2: I mean, it's ahistorical before anything else.
0: <laughs> well, let's not get into facts <laughs> here, CJ. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's keep it within the boundaries of the logic of this article. Well, I would say like I, I've heard um, preachers sometimes
1: talk about capitalism in, this, in the sense that it, it is human nature. Right. Which is like strange to me. Like it's baked into how we operate too. And then I've even heard a pastor say that like capitalism doesn't, and this is like a whole weird take. This came from uh, like capitalism doesn't exist. It insists from like human, human, our human nature like it, it it is baked into who we are so it is like this god-given kind of thing it's the fruit of like human nature and i think they're right but i don't think they're right in the good sense like <laughs> we have, you know we're gonna have a conversation about our original sin or like you know total depravity capitalism makes like a really great uh argument for that uh, but to say that god designed it that it's you know ordained by God is just crazy to me. And that quote literally just made me want to barf. I couldn't go any further than that in the article. I just...
0: Well, I'll take us a little further uh, because I read the whole thing like three times. I could not because I just could not parse what he was saying. But uh, this one, I like this one. Too often, we think about prices only when we are buying or selling something and the price system only when it has been corrupted and abused. Such a narrow focus causes us to miss out, out on seeing the beauty and intricacy of God's use of the price system for communication and coordination. This guy is stretching. This guy is just like I had an article due and I was at the store and I said, I wonder why 99 cents ketchup is 99 cents. Okay, that's thanks, God. Uh, anyway, God knows and cares about what may seem like trivial issues, such as whether you like ketchup on your fries, and has provided a way for our neighbors to help meet those needs.
2: This is so fucking reactionary. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I mean, I mean, like, this is just an article to be like, hey, kids who still read the Gospel Coalition, don't get into communism. Yeah, well, De- yeah. Definitely don't think about the systems that uh, provided you with 99 cent ketchup. It's God. God did that. There's not people dying in the fields in the Pacific Northwest and and in California in a heat wave right now because uh, they don't have any worker protections. Like the the people who picked those tomatoes that got made into that ketchup definitely don't have something to do with the, the price of that ketchup.
0: But like this like lack of a class analysis, like this isn't even a class analysis. This is just like a complete lack of like theological imagination. This is saying like, well, I like capitalism or I may not like it, but it's the only thing that we can do. Like it's a God ordained thing. So how do we put a ribbon on this piece of shit, right? Like how do we tie it up real nice to make it look right? So there's like this huge lack of like theological imagination that's happening that's saying, well, if we can't understand why this predatory system is the only way of being, we might as well have, we'll figure out all these different ways to kind of make it work within a God con uh, like uh, construct. And I'm probably giving it way too much than it deserves. But like, there's a lack of like that. You see that lack of like, what would you call it? a class analysis happening on the right? And you expect it, but you see this on the left too. Like you see leftist people like Ryan, you retweeted this, the guy who said that if you don't have a vegan diet, you can't call yourself a, a leftist or something like that. I don't remember what that was. <laughs> oh, damn. And it was like, it was so bad. It was so bad. And it's like, there's, there's a significant sense of, and what I, the reason I wanted to talk about this is like, Ryan, what you're doing in your work. And I think that what we talk about a lot in this podcast and Kevin, I think this is, way way uh episode like six or something like that brought this up too that we there's the class analysis like in my opinion like infiltrates everything and this should be like the, this should be the work of the christian christian church right now is like being able to root this stuff out and say no we're not beholden to these systems that give us nine to nine cent uh uh ketchup and we definitely aren't going to call them of god but like I, I don't know thoughts on any of that i'm <laughs> This this got me all worked up and now I realize I don't have much of a point to it. I just wanted to yell about something. Oh, this should just been a fight corner. Shame the devil. <laughs> <laughs> right, there you go.
1: It's it's an embarrassingly bad art like article. Like I mean, I, again, I didn't even get all the way through it because I was just like, I can't believe someone at. I, I mean, I TDC is awful anyway, but like it was just yeah. like this is. This is rough.
0: Well, I'll, I'll leave you with. Well,
2: part of it is just like blogger brainworms. I'm sure yeah. we're just like we've got to post something today. Sure.
0: Well, is it worse, better, or worse than the um, the uh, what was it, the holy violence of Nick Saban's football? CJ, which better or oh, worse?
2: God. Well, I didn't read this one, so I have oh. no idea if on the writing scale, I have no idea if it was better or worse. I mean, I think this one's like more insidious.
0: Yeah. We, Ryan, in a previous episode, we we did a long readers theater about a uh, about somebody who was the liturgy, the the violent liturgy of, of Nick Saban uh, and, and Alabama football. It was it's. I, I recommend it to you if you want more oh stuff God, to I kind don't of like, enrage are you. you a Tide and, fan? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. But. Tide, a Tide I mean, fan M. and is almost a god in this state. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation.
0: I want to say, like, how did we how did we invite a Tide fan and a process theologian onto our podcast? This is like well, the vetting system is broken down. Uh <laughs> without Isaac here. <laughs> it's on you. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on me. I didn't I didn't I didn't check Ryan out enough. Um I'll just leave you with the last with the last uh, quote of this, and then we can move on to, to fight corner. Um the next time you say a prayer of thanks for your daily provision, remember to also thank God for the ingeniously complex system he created to get your daily bread to you. Like this is all, all this is is about he like about like the, the tags at the store, like, like thinking about why is ketchup 249 today and not, and, and being like, well, it must be Jesus. I, I don't know. I I have, I, I just, I can't with this. So anyway, well-
2: It's strange because I don't know if you're someone like me who has moral OCD. Then, like you're thinking about this a lot, but you end up in like a very different place. I it's just like when I look at the, I I think that I can have the same awareness of like I look at the, uh, the prices in the grocery store and I'm aware of the complex systems of like what got this box of strawberries to the grocery store in Justin, Texas, but I like. I had come to a completely different conclusion of like, but yeah, it's a it's a wonderful and intricate and complex system, and it's amazing that humans built this and that so many people, you know, like worked to get these strawberries to where they are, and um, and also like maybe the system is bad, like maybe just because it's a system, God didn't design it, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's it right there. Like the idea of like. Well, look at how it, there's a severe lack of like looking down the the chain a little bit or down the line of how this actually got here and being like, look at the miracle of fresh strawberries sitting on the counter in my in my kitchen that I got from my uh grocery store right down the street. I'm I'm speaking about myself at this point, but it's like, yeah, it's like teaching that kind of thought process beyond that. I, I don't know. I thought it was relevant because, Ryan, I see a lot of what you're trying to do with Jubilee House is is the type of thing that's going to give people And they probably might already have it. But I think that this is the sort of lens that we actually need to have more of. So we just don't, we can actually question and name the things that are actively hurting us. um, No matter where you are on the the kind of economic scale, because I would say that it's hurting all of us, no matter if you are benefiting it from it or not, just probably less. Um, But anyway, just giving people that lens and that ability to be like, what the hell is this shit? I mean, to see more of that and not just the left-wing side of Twitter, but to take it away from the mocking which we did a little bit of, but to really take it away and be like, damn, this is actually this is like you said, insidious shit right here. Insidious stuff. And and the church should be the first person standing up and being like, nope, not this. Uh, because it, it anyway. Right.
1: No, I I mean, I, I think it was it was a good point to bring up just because it, it's just wild to think. And I, I think there is like this this total lack, you know, CJ, you mentioned it, like, you know, you you're aware of like how these are connected to other things. And I think, you know, part of it is like whether it be like a liberal right wing thing or whatever is like we're we're wholly detached from reality, so much of our culture is just completely detached, and I think probably if you get into like more poor areas, people are detached because they don't really have an option to like be able to care you know like it's kind of one of those things that in a predicament, like I know that this food was produced in a way that was harmful to the environment. It was probably not great for if it was meat, the animal, or a farmer. But also, I have to feed my kids and I am stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? And that's where it's like that whole personal... like individual responsibility, like really breaks down. And you see so much of that, like in liberal Christianity, pushing back, you know, oh, just drive a Tesla, drive an electric vehicle, (laughs) or, you know, know, like, (laughs) or, you know, buy organic, or go to the farmer's market, or just all these like different things. I'm like, those are not solutions. Or go buy this, you know, uh, fair trade shirt. They cost six times what it would have cost at Walmart. You know, and and then ultimately, it doesn't, like, lead to any change, like, in the, like, liberal circles, which is just strange to me, because it's all about, like, individual piety and, you know, people just doing their part. Uh, but, like, I mean, like, you know, it's, like, it's not gonna, like, solve the issue. And then, and then you have people who are like genuinely like aware of the world around them, but they're in between a rock and a hard place. Right. It's like, you know, you know, I always ask someone like the, th- the thought experiment of like, if you're outside of Walmart and it's pouring rain and you see, or, or it's freezing cold, let's go that Like it's freezing cold. You see a houseless person that doesn't have, they're in a t-shirt like, and this is like really like cold weather. Do you go in and buy them uh, a jacket? That would, and so, like, yeah, you did a good thing, right? But also that jacket is connected. that jacket was made in Bangladesh by someone who made like six hundred dollars maybe in this last year uh, for working ridiculous hours in like awful places. And so, like, do the most good you can. But like, and then don't like put it off like that you're like highbrow or like, you know, like, well, I do all this stuff and then talk about like, you know, you're not a leftist unless you're vegan or or which is like the opposite uh, end of the spectrum of like what this T- uh, TGC article is about. But I think one of the things, and uh, as far as like Jubilee House, and I don't want to keep staying on this too long. I know we need to move on to other things, but there is this tendency like in Christianity to kind of like, even in like liberal Christianity to like Benedict option themselves uh, through like individual piety. Uh friend of yeah, friend of the show, Roger Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like Roger, you know, his like the whole thing is like they, there is this like reclusive, like, you know, just take care of us, you know, we'll detach from all these things. And it happens in like liberal churches. It happens in like quote progressive churches, and so they just do it, they're able to do it because they have money. Um, <laughs> and we're like poor folks don't have the option. And I think part of like creating that awareness is necessary, especially like I guess for me and my work here is that like people are like embedded in this world, but they don't have like awareness of like some of those things so like it's a part of like half the work is like showing them like we can think differently about these things and think critically about them and like have an imagination for like other possibilities and so like one of the initiatives at Jubilee House like we just got it approved um two days ago like we're starting like community fridge program uh which will just have like fresh food in it for people to come get all the- anytime they want. And that's like, um, still not like to the, it, it's not going to call uh, fix the 21% food insecurity in our town. Um, but hopefully it'll, it'll get some people fed who wouldn't have been fed before in the way they wanted to, or how are too prideful to receive from a charity in town that wants you to come up and then hand you the food so they can get the PR. Um, And then on the other end, it's like, you know, one of our larger programs that we're we're thinking initiatives we're thinking through and uh, we're trying to get the city to give us two and a half acres of land on an old football field area that we can turn into a community farm. And it is like getting people connected directly with the work, you know, inviting people in the community to come and work this to produce food for our whole community. So that they're not detached from the labor. They're not detached from the experience of those things that goes into getting those strawberries on their counter um, and getting them connected uh, to the land. In some sense, so there's, there's a lot of like facets to it, I think. Um, but it's not a solution to the rampant poverty in our country, but it is something I, I hope that it can be, help them imagine a different world and help them live into a reality that is not present on a ma- macro scale, you know? Um, and I, I wish we we would see more of that. And I, I don't know if it's going to just completely sink and fail, but that's like kind of like things we're hoping to do and see. And, uh, but it starts with like helping people have that awareness and imagination, I think, because if it's, if you, they can't envision a different world or think critically about, you know, those things, then,
0: um, all the work's not ever going to produce anything. I don't think anyway. Yeah. Okay, uh,
2: so are we ready for a fight corner?
0: I mean, yeah, let's do it. It's, it's I, I feel like I feel like my my medicated state and my cold I, I've brought the energy down to my own kind of lethargic. So we need something at the end to, to perk us back up to get us going. <laughs> Ryan, are you aware of what the fight corner
1: is? I listened to a few episodes to get it, try to get a better idea of the podcast and like the fight corner, and I wasn't sure if I was supposed to bring someone to fight or CJ. You're only fighting people or. I mean, Uh,
2: yeah, so it's really kind of about uh, my personal beef, (laughs) but (laughs) if you brought someone, we can also welcome them to the Chili's parking lot. Um, Personally, the Chili's that I will be fighting people in is in Denton. It's absolutely horrible vibes. So just think about like (laughs) the worst vibes of a parking lot in your community and that's where you can fight someone. So uh, did you, do you have a fight corner? Did you? bring someone that you want to fight. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) You know what? Mine's stupid. So I'll go first and then we'll (laughs) go to you. Perfect. (laughs) So my fight corner this week uh, is rodeo clowns. (laughs) I I got really into professional rodeo um, a few months ago. I mean, I grew up in Texas, so I was like aware of rodeo, but I have never really like been into it until recently. And I watched the national finals rodeo, which has like an actual announcing team. Um, So I didn't realize until after I'd gotten very into the sport that most of the time when you're watching rodeo, um, you're just listening to the arena, the the guy who like has a microphone in, in the physical arena, just like announcing what's happening. And there's a lot of dead air in uh rodeo events because you're like waiting for people to get on an animal or you're like you know I mean like these are like live animals that people are like dealing with and so it just doesn't happen on a schedule like uh like a football game or anything and so this guy does a fucking stand-up routine (laughs) (laughs) for like two hours but they're not funny (laughs) (laughs) And he's doing like a buddy comedy routine with a rodeo clown who is just a guy in a funny outfit who like stands in the actual arena. And he's mic'd up. He's in like, he's in actual clown makeup. And he's like inside a giant like fiberglass barrel so that he doesn't get gored by a bull. I hate them so much. (laughs) Every single rodeo I've watched, I have been like physically unable to listen to the, the people announcing it because they're just, A, they're not funny. B, they ha- they serve no purpose. And C, I just find the entire uh, culture surrounding rodeo to be very bad. Like it's like everything that's wrong with conservatism.
0: <laughs> I feel like this is the first time that you've brought somebody up that I would be scared to fight in the parking lot. Like I feel like I don't want to mess with rodeo people, clowns or not. Uh, maybe the, cl- uh, maybe the clowns are different different breed, but... Uh, I
2: mean, so the thing is that rodeo clowns are not the same as bullfighters. Right. So the bullfighters also wear clown makeup, but, but they're the guys who are actually out there, like when bull riders or like saddle bronc riders or whatever like get thrown off. They're the ones like who are actually just like standing in an arena, like f- trying to get this bull a- away from the cowboy that like who is on the ground, possibly injured. So like those people, I don't want to mess with because like they're they're crazy. <laughs> But a rodeo but a rodeo clown and or the announcer are just guys and they're just guys in a barrel with a shitty sense of humor who think they're funny. <laughs> they're bad stand-up comedians and I won't stand for it.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a lot of podcasts.
2: Uh, it, truly, <laughs> it's a podcast V podcast fight is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> Bring it rodeo clowns. That's anyway, I've is. just been, I've been
2: really, I've been really annoyed and you know, there are other people I could have brought to the fight corner, but I thought I'd take it a lighter direction this time. But Ryan, are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready to to fight.
1: We don't have a Chili's, but Applebee's parking lot is uh, there. Uh, uh, Who I would want to fight is the whole Walker County uh, Sheriff's Department. Uh, (laughs) They're christo fascist. (laughs) They use God as propaganda, and I hate their institution more than I just just with a burning passion. I already want to abolish the police, but the Walker County Sheriff's Department is on a whole other level of the desire. I wish I could just burn the whole thing down. Um, oh, and
2: sheriffs are elected too, so they're even worse.
1: Yes, and... Uh, it's just bad they do so much like sorry to pivot from rodeo clowns to something serious uh, that's like they just do so much harm they don't they don't of course uh they're police they don't actually serve and protect anyone um other than rich rich folks in their property and i'm just gosh every time i see one i just imprecatory psalms come to mind uh every time i drive by their building and I have to constantly check my heart in so many ways because I just want their institution to burn down, and I have to remind myself that there's still people uh and they just need to learn um, they need to come to repentance and the love of God uh, that can transform them and welcome them out of this career that does nothing but exploit and hurt poor people in our community. Um, so yeah, that's who I want to fight. I'll, all of them. that can show up to Applebee's. I'll be there. Uh, actually, like it's part of my like life plan. And, you know, Paul talks about God delivering or praying for God to deliver a thorn out of his flesh. I'm praying to God to be a thorn in someone's flesh. And it is the Walker County Sheriff's Department.
0: And I'll put this out there is that so. you've tweeted about them or put it on Facebook or something about being up in their comments and it's gotten me now reading the comments and watching some of their live streams and stuff. So yeah, I don't, I don't know whether to thank you or not because it's, I, I have no dog in that fight except for the general feeling about sheriff departments. Um, so yeah, so I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll join you on that one because uh, yeah, the stuff you find in those comments are, are, are next level kind of bullshit. So.
1: Yeah, it's, it's rough. It's rough out here. They have a whole PR team that just follows them around to watch them pray before they do drug busts. or
0: oh, arrest poor
1: folks. Um, you know, and they, they do all kinds of weird Christian chaplaincy stuff that is like so gross. And I would love I to that. be able to go I would love to be able to go to like the jail and like go meet with prisoners. But I know like I'm not the kind of person that will ever let in there. And I know a bunch of people (laughs) used to be in ministry with a lot of people who work for the sheriff's department, which makes it even more um, problematic being back in that way. You know? So I, that's one of the things like I've just hit the ground running, uh, kicking the hornet's nest as much as I can. When bullshit comes across my Facebook timeline that they're done. I keep asking the sheriff what God he serves uh, because he talks about God all the time (laughs) and he never answers. So, (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, uh, like the Ben Wildf- Wildflower print says, this little light of mine is for burning down prisons.
1: Yep. I almost wore that shirt today. I but almost instead, wore that. I wore my races ain't safe in this holler
0: shirt. I almost wore, nice. I have both of those shirts that you all are wearing. Uh, and I almost wore, I, I, I thought I was like, oh, that's right. I don't want to be too on brand. So I wore the stripes, uh shirt, but I, <laughs> should, I should have joined the t-shirt club here. <laughs> Damn, i mistake mistaken. That that might've helped my energy some. Well, anyway, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Um, is there anything you want to plug or pitch? I know you got some some uh, crowd fundraising stuff you're trying to do. So throw it at us. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, Jubilee House. Uh, we're currently trying to fund to just fund the the fridge, the pilot fridge program. We got to build like an outdoor structure. So we might like, need money. Lumber costs are like uh, 300% right now. It's insane if you're like, a woodworker or a dad who has to build stuff or has like projects going on. Wood's so crazy. So we're like, we're trying to build the structure for a fridge, uh, for this outdoor fridge, for the People's Community Fridge Program. Uh, so I can give you guys links. I don't know if you put them in the show notes or whatever. If yep. you want to go there, uh, that would be great. Or just go check out Jubilee JubileeHouse.co. And you can just hear about all the different weird stuff we got going on and in, in the works. So,
0: All right. Well, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Uh, if we ever do a, a podcast on on process theology, we'll make sure that we have you on. Uh, that's like a, that's a subtle way of like, oh, sorry, this is your last chance because uh, I don't think I don't think we're ever <laughs> going to do one. I, I I think I'm CJ and I might be open to it. Isaac, like Isaac is probably like there's like a, a disturbance in the force happening. Isaac's up on a beach vacation. He's probably like something's happening on the pod right now, and I need to <laughs> investigate. Uh, he's very against process theology, but uh, oh,
2: don't slander him when he's not here to. He's not going to listen.
0: Isaac, if you listen, bring it up in the next pod. Um, he's not going to listen. It'll be fine. No, he he is. He's just against process theology. He and I have had lots of conversations about that. So uh, anyway, if we ever talk about it, we'll bring you back on. Good luck with uh, Jubilee House. I love everything that you're doing.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for so much. Let me come on and and ramble and rant about
0: my weird redneck world that I'm in. So thank you. Ramble and rant. That could be the, the name of this podcast. All right. Till next time.